1966, we had eight black players, four white players, and one Hispanic player. And our only purpose was to be the best team in the country. We did not have a social agenda at that time. We were only thinking about winning the championship. We thought we had the best team in the country. We knew that the following year, that was a, a team with a young man on it. Uh, I can't think of his name now, but they said that uh, if freshmen could play, that UCLA would have won it that year. But let me tell you something. We were determined, and I'm sorry, Kareem, we'd have beat you guys that year, too. <laughs> but anyway, we worked hard together on the court, and we had a lot of fun together off the court, all of us. We, did, we weren't separated. It wasn't three blacks and four blacks over here, and the whites there, and the Hispanic. And we were together, not only as a team, but we were like brothers. And like I said, we didn't have a social agenda, but God had a hand in that. And he chose us to open doors. He chose us to open the door to all people, not just African-Americans, but to all people who were oppressed, all people who were having doors slammed in their face because of race or, or gender or any other reason. He chose us. And we handled that. We handled that as a team. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. So good to be worshiping with all of you today. Uh, glad you're joining us as we continue this message series, Acts Like a Church. Uh, we've been reading and preaching our way through this New Testament book of Acts. It's a book that tells the story of the birth of the church and the spread of Christianity around the Roman Empire in the first couple of decades after the resurrection. Uh, the first weekend, we looked at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in powerful ways upon all people. Can we all say all people together? Say it with me. All people. The last week, it was Mother's Day weekend, and Emily preached a sermon that reminded us that uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has the power to shatter glass ceilings. This weekend, as we've been reading through kind of the middle of the book of Acts, I hope you've noticed that the power of the Holy Spirit can tear down walls that keep people divided. Could be uh, walls centered around race or gender or ethnicity or cultural differences. Now here at Hope, we have a mission. The mission of this church is to reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. It's on the screen. Can we all say this out loud together? Reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. We also have a vision statement that's a little longer, so we don't talk about it as frequently because it's harder to remember, but it's on the screen. Let's say this out loud together. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. If you're new to hope, if you're checking this church out, if you're just visiting and you wonder what kind of a church is this, the mission and the vision of hope has been central for pretty close to three decades now. This is who we are. This is who we believe God wants us to be and the kind of work God wants us to be about. And so if the mission and vision resonate with you, this would be a good church for you. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. The clip we just watched is an excerpt when the 1966 
uh, Texas Western National Championship men's basketball team got enshrined in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Not every team that wins the national championship gets into the Hall of Fame, but this team did because it was 1966. Think about everything that was going on in this country around civil rights in 1966, and this was the first team to win the national championship starting five black players. You heard in the clip the team was diverse. There were some black players, there were some white players, an Hispanic player, and they were able to come together, all of these differences, cultural, racial, ethnic, ethnic differences, they were able to come together because they were focused on a single purpose. They had a mission to win the national championship. As you read through the New Testament, the biblical writers are trying to describe something that was brand new. They were trying to describe the church. There'd never been a church before. Now all of a sudden there's churches popping up everywhere. And they would use metaphors. They would use uh, images, word pictures to try to help us understand what is this church thing all about. So sometimes the writers in the New Testament will say, "Ah, the church is kind of like a building. Or the church is like a family. Or the church is like a body made up of many parts. If the New Testament was being written today in 21st century America, I wonder if one of the metaphors that they would use is the church is like a team. The church is like a team. I like what the captain of the 1966 Texas Western team said. Uh, Harry Flournoy is his name. In the middle of that clip we watched, he said, God chose us to open doors. God chose us to open doors. As Luke is writing about the the growth and the spread of the church in the book of Acts, he uses almost the exact same language. It shows up in Acts chapter 14. It's the end of Paul's first missionary journey. He and one of his teammates, a guy named uh, Barnabas, they've been going all over the Roman Empire telling people about Jesus and starting churches, and they eventually come back to the church headquarters in Antioch. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. And you have to understand, this was shocking. This was surprising. Nobody was expecting that God was going to open the door of faith to all people, but that's what the book of Acts is about. Our Bible reading for today, uh, it's a couple of chapters later, it's Paul's second missionary journey. And at the end of Acts chapter 18, we're introduced to a couple of Paul's teammates, Aquila and Priscilla, and then they start coaching up a guy named Apollos. And I'm going to focus in on some details of the story that you probably, at first read through, you would think these are unimportant details, non-essential, inconsequential. But I'm convinced these little details will add up to some really big ideas to help us figure out what does it look like for us to be the church in central Iowa in the year 2023. So the setting at the end of Acts 18, our Bible reading, the setting is the city of Ephesus. But Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos are not native Ephesians. To find out how they get to the city of Ephesus, we want to back up to the beginning of chapter 18. Here, I'll start in verse 1. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. It kind of begs the question, doesn't it? How, why do Aquila and Priscilla end up in Greece from Italy? Um, are they on vacation? Is it spring break? 
Did, did they hear that Corinth is lovely this time of year? Is that why they, they went to visit Corinth? No. They are fleeing persecution. Religious and political persecution. You keep on reading in verse 2, and here's what the scripture says. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. They got kicked out of their home because they were the wrong faith, the wrong ethnicity. They're exiles. They are refugees. The more things change, the more things stay the same. How many millions of people in our world today have been forced out of their homes because of political or religious reasons? Paul befriends these two for a couple of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons they uh, build a relationship quickly is because they share a common faith. They're raised Uh, Jewish, but they believe Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for, that the Old Testament has prophesied. The other reason they form a quick relationship is because they work together. Uh, They're in the marketplace together. They are all, their occupation is tent makers, tent makers. The church that I grew up in, grew up going to, uh, when people came in to worship, we handed them a bulletin. Remember when we used to hand people bulletins? It's all online nowadays, but uh, When we got a new pastor one year at that church, there was a lot of conversation and scuttlebutt in the congregation because the new pastor changed the cover of the bulletin. It still said, welcome to church, welcome to Honey Creek New Providence Friends Church. I didn't have enough space to put all that up there. Uh, It still listed the name of the pastor. Gene Maynard was his name. But the tweak he made was he added this line uh, and put it on the front of the bulletin. Ministers, all the people ministers, all the people. We say something similar here. At the end of every worship service, somebody from the front will say, go in peace, serve the Lord. That's how you know the worship is over. But even more than that, it's giving you your kind of assignment for the week. You, you are a minister wherever you go, the marketplace, the school, the home, the neighborhood that you're a part of, you are a minister. And so we want to give you that verbal cue when we say go in peace, serve the Lord. Gene Maynard wanted people to have a visual cue on the front of the bulletin. You are a minister. And yes, there are uh, paid staff members at the church. There's a pastor. There's a team of staff here. But our primary job is to equip you to be ministers. Paul writes about this uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This is what Paul is doing with Aquila and Priscilla. He's equipping them so that they can build up the church. Uh, They hang out in Corinth for quite a while, and then Paul takes this team that he's building, they leave Greece, they go across the sea to the east, and they end up in Asia Minor, which is where Ephesus is. And they hang out doing ministry and building up the church in Ephesus for a while. And then Paul leaves, because Paul's always going from one place to another, just stays for a short amount of time, and then moves on to somewhere else. But Priscilla and Aquila stay in Ephesus, and that gets us to our Bible reading, that gets us to Acts 18, verse 24, which says this. Meanwhile, A Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. I'm guessing not too many of you have this verse underlined in your Bible or highlighted. I'd encourage you to highlight it and write the date and the name of the sermon on it so that when you look at it later and see it's highlighted, you'll be able, now why would I have highlighted this? Most people could care less about geography or history 
there's a whole bunch of geography and history just packed into this one, two, three, four words that are very informative for us as to who the church was in this day and who God's calling us to be in our day. Alexandria in Egypt is an African city. And Alexandria is named for Alexander the Great. I don't know what you remember about Alexander the Great, but one of the things historians say it's important to know about Alexander the Great was he was known for his religious tolerance. He's known for his religious tolerance. So unlike the Roman emperor Claudius Caesar, who kicks all the Jews out of Rome, deports them, Alexander uses his power in a very different way. So uh, Alexander, he is a conqueror. He has military might. He's conquering. He's building an empire. And when he conquers Egypt and other places, he allows the Egyptians to continue to practice the religion they've been practicing without any persecution. Now, he also adds the Greek religious practices that uh, his people bring with him, including the whole pantheon of Greek gods. There was a huge Jewish population in Alexandria at that time. He allows the Jews to continue to practice their faith without any persecution. Uh, The 300 years leading up to the birth of Jesus, again, what historians tell us, Alexandria becomes the hub. It becomes the seat of knowledge in the Greco-Roman world, more so than Rome, more so than Athens. If you wanted to be around the best of the best, the intellectual elite, you would go to this North African city of Alexandria. Uh, Alexander the Great appoints one of his generals, Ptolemy I, to kind of run things initially. And Ptolemy, one of the first things he does, he builds a school. It's called the Museum or the School of the Muses. And it is devoted to learning as much as they can possibly learn. Intellectual pursuits, whether it's mathematics or science or philosophy or history or art or religion. And, and to help with these intellectual pursuits, they built libraries. Uh, you Google the Library of Alexandria sometime. It, People talk about it with wonder. It's the biggest uh, library of its day. At one point, it had over 700,000 volumes of material in that library. It wasn't one of the actual seven wonders of the ancient world, but it was pretty great. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the lighthouse in Alexandria. So Alexandria is built where the Nile River flows into the Mediterranean Sea. They built a huge lighthouse there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, And the story is told when ships would come into the port of Alexandria, they'd go past that lighthouse, they would come into the port, and representatives from the Alexandrian library would uh, come onto the boat and ask, are there any books? Do you have any books? And if they did, they took them back to the library where the official scribes would quickly, as quickly as they could, copy those books. And those copies then ended up uh, in the library. They gave the original back to uh, the people on that boat. And so the library grew and grew and grew. Again, the people who study this thing say when the 33 years that Jesus was on earth, there were more Jews living in Alexandria than in all of Judea and Galilee combined. A huge Jewish presence in, in Alexandria. The other thing they tell us is Alexander becomes this richly diverse cosmopolitan kind of city mixing of all of these cultures, Roman and Greek and Arab and Jewish and African and Egyptian. And Alexandria was highly influential 
in the development and the growth of the church. Uh, when we do baptisms, we recite the Apostles' Creed. Historically, there are three creeds for almost 2,000 years now that have helped Christians know what is it that we actually believe? What is it that we profess when we say we are Christians? So we got the Apostles' Creed, which we all just said. There's the Nicene Creed. Some of you have heard of the Nicene Creed from the Council of Nicaea. There's also a creed called the Athanasian Creed, written by Athanasius, who was the leader of the church in Alexandria. Huge formative ideas about what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be a Christian coming out of this city in North Africa of Alexandria? But we hardly ever talk about it. We hardly ever talk about the African influence of Christianity. All kinds of reasons for that. One of the reasons is because they burned down the library. And historians are not in agreement as to who burned down the library or when the library was burned down. Uh, some people say it was the year 272 as Christianity was becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. It was the Christians who burned down the library. Other uh, scholars and historians say, no, no, no. It wasn't until the 7th century when the Muslims took over and it was the Muslims who burned down the library. So there's not consensus on who or when, but there is consensus on why it was burned down. And the consensus by historians is the library was burned down because the people in power wanted to get rid of any book or any piece of literature that didn't align perfectly with what they believed. So they burned it down. And we've kind of just forgotten about the history and the influence of the North African church in Alexandria on who we are and what we believe as Christians. I find this history fascinating. And it starts to expand what we're thinking about as we read through this part of the book of Acts. When we read about a Jew named Apollos, who was an eloquent speaker, he knew the scriptures well, and now he's up in Ephesus and he has come from Alexandria in Egypt. You keep on reading through this. Verse 25, Apollos had been taught the way of the Lord and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. Remember, John the Baptist says, I'm going to baptize you with water for uh, the forgiveness of your sins, but someone's coming after me, Jesus is coming, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Paulus didn't know about that. So, verse 26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Isn't that hilarious? People, this is hilarious. Uh, the first church that I worked at, the senior pastor was the Reverend Dr. Stuart Broberg. The Reverend Doctor. He earned that title. He went to Princeton for his doctorate. And so he, you know, all the time and all the effort and all the money that it took to get that title, you're going to call me the Reverend Doctor. That's Apollos. He, he is the intellectual elite. He was schooled in Alexandria. He's Ivy League. He's the smartest guy in the room. He's eloquent. He, he does a great speech. <laughs> and when he's done with it, a couple of blue-collar refugees from Italy come up to him and say, eh, not bad, but you missed something here. And Apollos is humble enough to say thank you. Thank you for continuing to teach me. Thank you for helping me learn more. Thank you for expanding my understanding. 
And he asks them to continue to coach him up, to continue to equip him, to continue to disciple him. And that's what we read about happening. The church is pouring into this guy, Apollos, and eventually they send him back to Greece, and he becomes the leader of the church in Corinth, the Corinthian church. It's Apollos. Again, as you're reading through this, do you see the power of the Holy Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures by whatever means necessary? It's fascinating to me. And something similar continues to happen in our day and through this church. Eli, one of our staff members here this fall, is taking a team of people on a mission trip. Uh, They are going to Ghana in West Africa. Our mission partner in Ghana is GlobeServe, uh, led by Pastor Sam Dunya. And we've had this partnership with Sam close to two decades now. Started with this vision that Sam had. There are a lot of places in uh, Ghana that don't have access to clean, healthy drinking water. And so we partnered, and some of you gave. We, we asked you if you would consider giving to help dig wells in Ghana so people could have clean, healthy drinking water. And then the rest of Sam's vision was, now that they have physical water, let's give them spiritual water, the water of life. And we built churches uh, within walking distance, a short walking distance, eyesight, of those wells. So as this has been happening and this church has been contributing to help that happen, Pastor Sam has been building a team and equipping people and discipling people and raising up pastors. I called uh, Pastor Jeremy at the West Des Moines campus who oversees the missions for hope. I said, how many churches have we built uh, through our partnership with Pastor Sam and GlobeServe the last you know, almost two decades? We're up to almost 800 churches. Isn't that amazing? And a lot of them are in the northern region of Ghana that's predominantly Islamic. And so we're, we're bringing Christ to all cultures. And we get to be a part of it. It takes a team to do this. Paul writes about this in a letter to the church in Corinth that Apollos is leading. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. Read it out loud with me. I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. And so it is for you and for me. People have planted the seed of faith in your life. Other people have watered it. God's the one who made it grow. Earlier in the service, we said thank you, and we prayed a prayer of thanksgiving and praise for uh, the way God is using the people of this church, uh, volunteers, to help in children's ministry and student ministry, to plant seeds and to water seeds, and we're grateful to God for the way those seeds are growing, and the door of faith is being opened to all people. But it takes a team. It takes a team. So in the time we have left, uh, quickly, three characteristics of the team God's building here at Hope. Uh, Number one, a trusting team. Our son, Shaden, he's been running track this spring. He hates track, but he loves football, and his football coaches told him, you should run track. So he's been running track, but he comes home, and he's like, I can't wait for football. I can't wait for track to be over. I can't wait to start training for football. And I'm with him. I can't wait for football. I'm getting excited too. I'm not going to wait, uh, you know, wish the summer away, but I'm excited for football. This is how uh, sick I am. This is where uh, Shaden gets his love for football, I'm sure. Uh, Tuesday, I had some free time Tuesday night. And so I rewatched the Cyhawk football game from two years ago. Both teams were ranked in the top 10, and ESPN's game day was outside of Jack Trice Stadium, uh, broadcasting from there in the morning. Early in the first quarter of the game, they're talking about the great job uh, Coach Matt Campbell is doing at Iowa State and and the culture that he is building. So I want you to watch this clip where he talks about the importance of trust for teams. Take a look. 
Ohio State's not an easy place to win, but Matt Campbell's done so. First coach in school history with four straight winning seasons. I think trust in, in college football is one of those those areas that uh, it's easy to sit here and say that it's easy to to talk about those things. Um, I think it's really hard to find those things and you know in, in football, especially at the college level and trust rose from player to player, player to coach, coach to coach and and really from coach back to the player. And if you can create that, if you can find that value system within a program, then great things can happen. And, you know, I think we've been able to create that and, and work really hard to try to sustain that. They have a three-time Big 12 Coach of the Year, and this is just his sixth season. Curtis through the completion to rush, got the nine yards on first down, and now they pick up a first down on the ground going back to Brees Hall. You sit around and speak with Matt Campbell. You can see how... He can recruit. He finds people that fit his program. He's got continuity on his coaching staff. People that have come from with him, many of them from Toledo to Ames, and they know the type of players. You better love football if you're going to come play here for the Cyclones. That's one of the first things he talks about of importance because of they don't have five-star guys all over this roster. They do the little things right, and it adds up to big things. They do the little things right, and it adds up to big things. Uh, Coach Campbell says it's easy to talk about trust, but in practice, it's really difficult. And it kind of cracks me up. Um, we're talking about trust, but did you notice they, they start off with, like, here's what's happening on the field in the game, and then they transition to the uh, interview, and they, they put up a graphic as they transition to the interview? Did you see that? The graphic they put up as they transition to the interview of the Iowa State Cyclones football coach? was the Iowa Hawkeyes graphic. How can we trust you, ESPN, ABC? Oh, practice what you're preaching. Anyway, Jesus says to his disciples, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Um, how do we love others? There's a professing of our love, and there's a practicing of our love. If we're going to profess our love, it is important that we do it in the big moments. You better profess your love if you're married on your anniversary or on your spouse's birthday. Other important big days throughout the year, it's important for us to profess our love. But if that's all we do, eh, trust is going to be weak. So uh, a woman named Brene Brown, she says that uh, trust, and she studies this stuff, re does research. Trust is actually built not in the big moments and the big things, but in the small moments, the small things what Kirk Herbstreet said at the end of that clip, that it's the little things that add up to big things. And almost always, there's a gap between what we say and what we do, our professing of love and our practicing of love. When you think about those of you who are married, there's sometimes a gap in our marriages. There's gap in parent-child relationships. There can be gaps in a work environment, gaps on a team between what we profess and what we practice. This is a lesson I learned from my son, uh, Kemble. Kemble was 18 months old when we moved to Ankeny. He's 18 years old now. He's going to be uh, graduating in a couple of weekends from Centennial High School. And when Kemble and Shaden were growing up, they were less than 18 months apart. And so they were often having physical altercations, trying to get whatever it was that they wanted to get their way. And they would start fighting for it. And so I spent a lot of time uh, when they were little parenting them by sitting down and using sound 
reason and logical arguments, explaining to them verbally why as they grew up and got bigger, they were going to need to develop a better strategy for uh, dealing with conflict in, the, in their relationship. That didn't work a whole lot. Um, they figured it out on their own, I think. But there was, there was one time when they were, I, they were on the ground. They, I think they each had each other in a headlock. I'm not sure how they could do that, but they did it. And I thought maybe Shaden was turning blue and somebody's going to get hurt. And so I thought I needed to end this quickly. Not one of my finer parenting moments. I dove on top of them and physically pulled them apart, all the while yelling, stop fighting or somebody's going to get hurt. Thank you for laughing. You're all remembering times when you did the same thing. Uh, I was twice as big as them. So when I dove on them and pulled them apart, it hurt them. And there was a, uh, a gap between what I was professing, stop fighting or someone will get hurt, and my practice, jumping on them, pulling them apart, and hurting them. And in that gap, I lost Kimball's trust. He looked at me and he yelled at me, Dad, you hypocrite! Isn't that great, the words that they pick up on? And he was right. Um, think about the teams that you are a part of. Think about the family that you are in, the relationships that you are, the church that you are a part of. Think about the people outside our church who look at this place and who are we at Lutheran Church of Hope? More and more all the time, we want our profession of love and our practice of love to come into alignment. When there's a gap, it's, it's hard for trust to be there. But the more they come into alignment the more we're going to be a trusting team. Second characteristic is I think God wants us to be a helping team here at Hope. Early on in Jesus' uh, ministry, he's developing a reputation as a great speaker and a miracle worker, and so huge crowds come uh, wherever it is that Jesus shows up. There's a huge crowd around him as Mark chapter 2 begins, and then pretty quickly we read, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They wanted to get their friend close enough to Jesus that Jesus could heal their friend. Crowd was so big they couldn't get close, so they go up on the roof, tear a hole through the roof, tear a hole through the ceiling, lower their friend on the mat, place him at Jesus' feet. Lots that you can uh, pick apart from this story. One of the things for me, it, it's a reminder, it's a picture of reality for you and me. The reality for every single one of us. Sometimes in our lives, we will be the ones who are carrying our friends on a mat, or we will be the ones who are carrying a family member who is on the mat. We will be the ones offering to help. And for every single one of us, there will be times in our lives when we're the person on the mat, when we need to be carried, when we need to be helped. And part of the difficulty, part of the challenge with this is we live in a part of the world that conditions us to believe there's something wrong with us when we're on the mat. That asking for help, needing to be helped, somehow is a sign of weakness. And so many of us judge ourselves. When, when, we're, when we're in that place where we need help, we judge ourselves. What's wrong with me? Why can't I figure it out? If we judge ourselves when we need help, it's going to be really difficult to offer help to someone else without also judging them. I'm so much better than you. I don't need help, but you need help. One of the big critiques, one of the big criticisms of the church in America today is we're so judgmental. And this is one of the places where we earn that reputation. Because scripture could not be more clear. 
Every single one of us is in need of help. Turn to somebody close to you and just tell them, you need help. It'll be fine to just say it. You need help. Not that kind of help. Not kind of, the kind of help that the Bible says we need shows up in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. We were utterly helpless. And Christ, non-judgmentally, full of love, said, let me help. We cannot give what we have not received. So more and more all the time, we want to be the kind of team that knows we need help so that we can become a helping team. Uh, the last characteristic I want to talk about today is a connected team. How do we grow more and more into a connected team? Um, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 is talking about the job of the staff and the leaders of the church to equip the church for ministry. Just a couple of verses after that, in verse 16, he talks about the importance of connection. Christ makes the whole body, the whole church, fit together perfectly. He connects us. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Reach out to the world around us, share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. So that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That's the goal. Love is the goal. And this perfect alignment of what we profess and what we practice. Scripture tells us we grow through connection. And it's not just any kind of growth. It's growth that is full of love. Uh, one of the ways uh, Kemble and I have grown more connected over the years is through a shared love of the performing arts. So he's been in show choir since eighth grade. And then uh, last year, some of his show choir friends said, you should try out for the spring musical. So he did, and he loved that. Uh, this year, he tried out for the musical again. The musical was the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And uh, Kimball played Vice Principal Douglas Panch, I think was his name. And he was like, straight lace, like no smile, super serious. This is a comedy musical about a middle school spelling bee. And it was hilarious. And his job, Kimball's job, was to tell the students what their word was. So we showed up. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was the final performance of uh, the run of performances. Uh, I preached that weekend. And we went home and we had uh, lunch with uh, Wendy's parents and my parents and then all the kids and the family. That was there. We went to the 2 o'clock show. And we walk in and I'm greeted almost immediately by Emma Kaser, who is a senior who comes to Hope Ankeny. She was kind of running the whole thing, the stage manager, that sort of thing. She says, Scott, we need some volunteer spellers from the congregation. Would you be willing to help? And I said, okay. So here I am, speller number 57. <laughs> Still in my sweater vest from church. Uh, here's Megan Helt, another hopester. There's more hopes. I was surrounded by hope kids uh, sitting up there on uh, that stage. And I ended up on that stage for almost all of the first act uh, I thought they would call me up pretty quick. Here's a ridiculously hard word for you to spell. We'll laugh at you, and then you can sit back down. But uh, here's how it worked. So they would call up the student, and Kemble would give them the word. And the student would say, could you uh, give me a definition? And he'd give the definition. They would ask, could you use it in a sentence? And he would say, here's a sentence where the word is used. And then they would spell the word. Finally, it was my turn to come up. My first word was cow. I got that one right. But then I had to go sit back down, and it was a good, I had a good view from there. 
Second round, I got up, and the word was atheist. Uh huh. And I thought, I think I am being set up here. Um, uh, I knew the definition. Kimball put it in a sentence that was hilarious, but probably not appropriate for a worship service. And then I spelled the word, and I got it right. And I had to go sit back down for the third round. Finally, I got to come up for my third word, and Kimball said, my word is sermunkle. Have you ever heard that word, sermunkle? I'd never heard it before. It's an actual word. Look it up. So I said, sermunkle, uh, can you give me a definition? Kimball says, a short sermon by a pastor or priest. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, very funny. Couldn't you put it in a sentence? There's no such thing as a sermunkle at Hope. And everyone's laughing, and Kemble's straight face just teasing me. And it was one of those great moments of connection for our... I'm, how many years from now will we still be telling that story? You remember when Dad had to spell Sir Munkle? I didn't spell it right. And since it was a sermon, I thought it would be S-E-R-M-O-N, but it's a U. Anyway. Um, and in that moment, our family felt healthy and growing and full of love. It's really interesting. It's the little thing that build trust, that help you know uh, you are connected, you are part of a team, and, and there are people to help when you need it. Uh, we're going to end the service by singing a prayer of blessing for uh, high school graduates here at Hope Ankeny. And I know there are other kinds of graduates. We had a preschool graduation uh, last week, and there are college graduations, all kinds of, I think there's kindergarten graduations. Every year you're graduating. Um, some of you may be in a graduation season, some of you may not. But if you're not, think about the people who have planted and watered the seeds of faith for you. Think about the God who's opened the door of faith for you as we end worship with this song.